From just our first look at the first element of the armour of God, I think it's self-evident how far behind the times our understanding, our current understanding of the armour of God is from the Sunday school days to what I'm speaking about, which is a mature response to the kingdom of darkness, its existence, its function, and your role as a mature believer opposing it. Unfortunately, uh, from the Sunday school days, the, the, the furthest we've gotten as I mentioned again, is about Jericho marches and um, prayer vigils and so on. Those aren't even spoken of in the Scriptures, but they've become the centerpiece for how we think of spiritual warfare. And mixed in with some of that is deliverance, mostly shouting at devils, and and requiring them to come out. Nothing about uh, building strength against the enemy, so much so that over time uh, not only do you step on his head, but you as part of the larger body of Christ destroy all the works of the devil within your domains, as if he has no ability to function within the domains that you have been given over which to rule. That's the goal, you know. The Son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. And Paul's admonition to the Romans at the very end of the book of Romans was to be excellent at what is good and be innocent of evil and that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. As far as I know, the efforts, our understanding of spiritual warfare and our understanding of the elements of this warfare do not come near fulfilling those mandates. They're all hopeful, hopefully uh, the hope of it all is to maintain some kind of a safe haven against Satan. We talk about the gates of hell coming against us and hopefully we'll get beamed out of here by the rapture. This kind of categorical foolishness is only understandable if we consent to the fact that most people are biblically illiterate, including the vast majority of preachers. They're biblically illiterate. Paul concludes the book of Ephesians by this reference to the armour of God, having told us from the beginning that God put everything under Christ's feet for the church, which is His body. So our mandate is not to survive, our mandate is not 
to find safe places or safe havens. A mandate is not to make empty gestures like marching around, marching around cities and prayer vigils and 1040 windows. That's nonsense. Has anybody gone back and looked at whether or not any of this works? I mean, there's a, there's a hype associated with every new rollout of spiritual warfare uh, tomes, but nobody ever goes back and looks and says, is this true? Did it work or is it just bogus? And a distraction consuming resources of time and finances and people, while the real war is being lost, being lost on practically every front. Look at the condition of the present church and ask yourself, does this remotely look like victory in any capacity? Soon enough, because of this great folly and misdirection, we're going to want to be beamed out of here because we've messed it up so badly and we're not going to be beamed out. What will happen, what is happening, is those who have messed it up in this way and those who have allowed it, participated in that, are falling away some will be refined and come back around. Most of the leaders are being dethroned by God Himself because there is a reality to take the place of all this fake and nonsense and hype that groups like Christian television have been enormously contributing to the propagation of these witless gospels. God's not doing much in those venues, but He is doing a lot, quietly and out of sight. That's why, that's why you're hearing the sound of these things and you're thinking, some of you are probably thinking, now who are these people and why is it we haven't heard about them before? Simple. God kept them hidden until the time was right because it was never about the glitz and glamour of Christian television and popular conferences and the rest of it. Those are just personality shows, variety shows, not serious in dealing with the devil, in dealing with the things that advocate the Kingdom of God. Let's move on to the second element presented as the armor of God and let's see, I mean my, my presentation of spiritual warfare is in another universe from what I've been describing as the popular presentation of spiritual warfare, girding your waist with the truth, speaking about the renewing of your mind and tying up falsities that have been there since your mother's womb and arresting the soul from its way of making decisions by the Holy Spirit in fellowship with your Spirit so that the truth 
stands and sustains you. Let's move on to put, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. You'll notice he uses the word having. So it's before you stand having your waist gird with the truth. You notice that? You stand having your waist girded by the truth, you know, having the loins of your mind bound up by the truth, but before that you've already put on the breastplate of righteousness. You see that? Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, you've done it before, it's the prior thing. But also, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and having shod your feet, so you've done at least two things previously. One is you've shod your feet with the prep, you've put on the breastplate of righteousness and you, uh, you've shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then he goes on to say, above all, whereas these things are important, above those things in importance, taking the shield of faith with which you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take and then you may take the helmet of salvation the sword of the spirit which is the word of god so what you should have done before girding the loins of your mind with the truth is having put on the breastplate of righteousness so what is that Again, these are analogies to military equipment common in the days of Paul and common to his audience. The breastplate of righteousness. Now physically a breastplate had two pieces to it, a front piece and a back piece, because the breastplate didn't just simply hang by straps around the neck. There was a hole in the breastplate that fitted over your head and you had a front portion to the breastplate and a back portion to the breastplate. Typically you could tell something of the rank of the soldier who put on a breastplate. Uh, The breastplate often was of different material uh, and the breastplate had various insignias on it depending upon the rank of the soldier on the front, not so much in the back although the back matched the front in the sense of the material, the fit and so on. So, but in war the importance of the breastplate was that it protected the heart, it protected the vital organs but especially the heart because the ancients knew this much about warfare, if something pierced the heart you were done for. So the breastplate front and back is called the breastplate of righteousness, breastplate of righteousness and underneath that was the most vital of organs, 
which was called the heart, the heart. So I want to unpack that as we go forward. Everyone does not have the same rank in the kingdom of God, which is to say everyone does not have the same measure of rule or sphere of rule. But whatever the the dimensions of rule or the metrons of rule that you have, it must be a rule of righteousness. The heart must be a righteous heart. And the breastplate guards the heart in all of its righteous operations. Sometimes the sphere of your rule may be just your own soul. Certainly when you're young and learning the ways of God, you're not given great measures of rule because you're incapable of conducting rule in any more than your soul. If you do not learn to rule your own soul, God will typically not give you rule over much else because the unrefined nature of your rule, if you can't rule your own soul, is the same quality of rule that you will exercise in every domain of rule. Now this is patently apparent. We've watched how suddenly many young people became quite wealthy from inventions. Information technology produced a floodgate of new wealth, but mostly it went to young people. How well have they ruled in vast domains? We've watched one of the most prominent of these persons, um, Mark Zuckerberg. We watched him develop the rule of Facebook and now Meta. What is the, quali- what is the quality of his rule? What, um, in the sphere of his rule, what, what, what do we know about Zuckerberg? We know he's driven by money. We know that despite promises made about safeguarding people's information and so on, um, internal policies of Facebook over many years since its existence has consistently shown a pattern of profiting and benefiting from uh, the, the operations of Facebook no matter what the promises have been uh, to the general population that trusted him with their information. And what really comes down to it, he finally simply renames the company 
in an attempt to escape the past of his rule. What am I saying? I'm saying that if you are unskilled in rule, if you've not learned to rule your own soul, your entire outlook is going to reflect that deficiency, no matter how vast your empire may be. And I selected him as one example, perhaps the glaring example, of what happens when young unseasoned people have such tremendous power to create economies but lack fundamental character. Um, The evidence of that is uncontrovertible and the principle that I'm announcing is not really subject to debate. So righteousness or the sphere of one's rule from God, if God is the one handing out measures of rule, He will never give you any greater rule than you can handle. And He begins with teaching you how to rule your own soul. Then He begins to teach you how to rule domains that you might in fact be given to rule. When people get married, uh, the domains increase. A husband's domain and a wife's domain both increase to involve at least each other. Learning how to rule within those domains is an upgrade in your rule. If you have not learned to rule righteously, you may yet be married the unrighteous nature of your rule will continue in that domain. Eventually perhaps children might come along. If you have not learned how to rule righteously, the sphere of your rule may be expanded, but the quality of your rule will now begin to take on new and ominous Uh, permutations and it will show up in your children, it will show up in the children of such unprepared rulers. On the other hand, the Holy Spirit is faithful to teach you how to rule your own soul and if you understand His teachings and apply yourself to learning, then of course He gives you the help of a spiritual father in the house of God and and, uh, commits you to the rule of a spiritual father. This of course was even true of God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, Joseph was described in Scripture as a righteous man. Joseph was a righteous man. God committed the rule of His Son, the oversight of His Son, to a righteous man as opposed to an unrighteous man. The struggle of Jesus would be much greater, I would suspect, if the natural father to whom He was made subject, if He were an unrighteous man. Children who are put under the rule of unrighteous fathers 
have a very, very difficult time. Scriptures speak to it earlier on in Ephesians by saying such things as, and fathers, do not exasperate your children but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The responsibility of fathers is to train their children in righteousness, both natural fathers and spiritual fathers. It's a fundamental mandate. So here it says, you should first have put on a breastplate of righteousness. You should have first guarded your heart with the understandings of righteousness. Now, I want to bring in at this juncture uh, two things. First, I want to uh, reference Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 16 through 20 and the entire Psalm 82. Now these speak of qualities of righteousness that God insists upon. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 16 through 20. Here the Lord is speaking to Israel and he says this, therefore, incredible, incredible, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Now we thought that circumcision related extensively to a physical act. But God was saying, although it does relate to a physical act and it does have consequences in the practice of procreation, it also has a spiritual connotation. It is impossible to have an operation, a medical operation, to circumcise the heart. It is intrinsically a spiritual reference to circumcise the heart, which is to remove the flesh from, from contaminating your emotions and your judgments because out of the heart flows all the issues of life. So circumcise the foreskin of your heart and do not be rebellious any longer. The opposition to righteousness is rebellion, rebellion against the standard of divine truth, pushing back against what is true because you want the emotions, you prefer the emotions, you prefer to sit down in these emotions 
and not be disturbed. There's a line from a song. It says, uh, uh, it refers to someone as a child who's grown old. Child who's grown old. We know far too many people who are just children who've grown old. The moment something happens, they erupt in their flesh and all the years of pew sitting seems to make absolutely no difference to them. I have dealt with such types my entire life as a preacher and there are times when I have put trust in and confidence in certain ones like these and it has never failed to disappoint me. You simply have to keep going. But children who have grown old is the function of people who have refused to remove the flesh, their emotions that have nothing to do with righteousness. They judge things falsely because their flesh is in the way. They want what they want, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, overthrows. See, this is how people are taken captive. This is what spiritual warfare looks like. You could go walk around any city you want to and get any group of people to walk around cities with you, but if they don't circumcise their hearts, no result that resembles spiritual warfare comes about. Now he goes on, For the Lord your God is God of gods, and Lord of Lords, the great God, the mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, Love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him, and to Him you shall hold fast and take oaths in His name. He is your praise and He is your God, who has done for you these great things, great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with seventy persons and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in the multitude." So God administers justice for the fatherless, the widows, loves the stranger and so on. So the heart, when he speaks of heart, he's speaking about the righteousness of your judgments. Keep that in mind when we come back because I'm going to Psalm 82 because that's where God unpacks in that psalm what He's warning Israel concerning the condition of their hearts. If their hearts are governed by the flesh 
or if their hearts are governed by the fear of the Lord, which is the foundation of righteous judgments. We'll continue on now with the breastplate of righteousness. I'm Sam Solon. We'll talk then. Bye-bye.